Welcome to Rework, a podcast by Basecamp about the better way to work and run your business. I'm Sean Hildner. I'm Waylon Wong, and I'm not here to make friends. Ugh, Waylon, what are you doing? Oh, I was pretending like I'm on a reality show to get you in the right frame of mind for this episode. <laughs> I'm sure you know this. I'm not a big fan of reality television. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> so do you want to tell everyone what this show is about? Well, let's start by introducing you to our guest. My name is Anne Helen Peterson, and I am a culture writer, and I write a newsletter called Culture Study. A couple of years ago, I wrote an an article about millennial burnout for BuzzFeed and then turned it into a book, which is out now. It's called Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. I actually remember you sent Anne's BuzzFeed article to me when it came out. Yeah, because we'd been talking about how you had been putting off some boring adult errands, like it was like sharpening your knives or something, and I diagnosed (laughs) you with millennial burnout. And you might remember this is also while I was in denial about being a millennial. That lasted for a really long time. Your denial, I mean. My millennial burnout is ongoing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it turns out... Um, 1981, I believe, is the starting year for being a millennial, and I'm 1981, so I am an old millennial, um, which is also Anne Helen Peterson's birth year. Oh, fantastic. So who is Anne Helen Peterson? She is one of my favorite writers slash cultural commentators, and her book was on my mind because it addresses topics that we talk about a lot on this show, you know, like the dangers of overwork and pursuing growth at all costs. And then I saw her tweet that she was watching a reality show on Netflix called Selling Sunset, a show that I also watched and super enjoyed. I think I mentioned it a couple episodes ago. I'm sure I blocked that. (laughs) I feel like I explained it to you in great detail. And to you, it just sounded like wah, 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 I usually just shut the mic off and walk out of the room for a second. (laughs) (laughs) Um. So I emailed her and asked if she wanted to come on Rework to talk about all the ways millennial burnout manifests itself on Selling Sunset. You know, in reality show world, we love to talk about villains, but you know who the real villain is? Who's that, Waylon? Capitalism. (laughs) And this final transformation, Rework is now... (laughs) Socialist propaganda. Yeah, no, we're ready for the revolution. And it starts right here with <laughs> this rework. episode about a reality show that I wanted to talk about. So I shoehorned it into my day job. Uh, okay, I guess I have no choice but to bite. What is Selling Sunset about? Selling Sunset is about a luxury real estate brokerage in Los Angeles run by two twin brothers. And all of the agents on the show are beautiful women who are always dressed to the nines. And the show is kind of equal parts watching them do their jobs, like showing homes and having open houses and negotiating deals, and then having super messy personal conflicts with each other. And the producer behind the show is a guy named Adam DeVello, who also created Laguna Beach and my favorite show of all time, The Hills. Okay, well, let's get into it. <laughs> you sound so resigned. <laughs> let's get to work. I'm Jason Oppenheim, and this is my twin brother, Brett. Together, we built and own the Oppenheim Group Broker Chair. We are far and away the number one real estate team in West Hollywood. We sell a quarter billion dollars a year. Anyone who's buying or selling in the Sunset Strip in the Hollywood Hills calls us. Let's get to work. I wanted to ask, how did you get into selling Sunset? 
burnout. Um, <laughs> no, so here's the thing. I have a PhD in media studies and for a very long time prided myself on my diverse and edifying television and, and movie choices. Like would always be watching the show that, you know, you should be watching. And I saw enough people talking about it on Twitter. Also, I am obsessed with like Zillow stocking. I just find it incredibly interesting looking at people's houses and and how they want to sell them and the choices that they have made. So I was like, okay, I think I, I, I will like this. And also I can convince my partner to give it a try because he also is fascinated by real estate. And then once you started watching it, were you like, oh, this actually comes right back to what my book is about? Is it like impossible <laughs> to like consume any pop culture, not through the lens of your book research now? I mean, I, I didn't. When you brought it up, all of the dots connected. I was like, oh my gosh, well, any reality show that takes place in the workplace is actually a really horrible burnout scenario because you are absolutely mixing your personal life with your professional life and your performance of self, like vis-a-vis the the taping of your life at various times. But then like this one in particular, there's just th- that office is so weird. And I'd love to hear like what you think is going on with that office, because I, I could talk about it for hours, but I'm really curious what you think. The office is weird. And I think part of it is that it's run by these two brothers who look exactly the same. Right. So like from the jump. I really cannot tell them apart. I know that one has a condo and one has like a, a giant house. Like I can kind of hear some gradations in their voice, but I wouldn't necessarily be able to tell you like which one is which at all. One of the central things you say in your seminal essay that you turned into your book is that millennials have been told all their lives to work, that they've internalized the idea that they should be working all the time. Can you talk a little bit about how you see this on the show? I think that they are encouraged to give up all of their lives to the flexibility of of the market. You know, there's the parts of the show where they talk about like, oh, you should do twilight showings because it allows a certain type of client to really see themselves in this space at night, right? So that means that you have to probably work all day and then like be ready to go and totally on and look great to go do a twilight showing. Open house culture, like the pressure to be having open houses as much as possible means that you have to spend your weekends just like hanging out at this house, waiting for people to go. I think what happens is that like maybe in another scenario, you'd be like, okay, I'm going to have an open house on Saturday, so I'm not going to work at all on Friday. But that does not seem to be the case. It just seems that they are working in every corner of their lives. Right. And then the most egregious example of being Mary showing the home, that's also her wedding venue, on her wedding day. It's just wild. Oh my God, are you getting married? (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you. Only Um, Mary. This is the hardest working chick. Like... (laughs) It's your wedding day, but for the yeah, love of God. I know, but I'm here anyway. So take a look around, and then I'm going Do to run down there and meet you. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So All sorry. Right. No, so don't be sorry. I mean, do you think that they forced her to do that? Like, they were like, oh, do this to add some narrative tension? Or do you think that she really was like, I'm going to have my wedding at this house and sell it on the same day? I couldn't tell what was going on there because on one hand, I could 100% see the producers kind of making her do it. Yeah. 
then at the same time, even if the producers made her do it, like obviously Mary is a willing participant, not just because she signed up for the show in general, but I also feel like she's given this edit like she is the hardest worker, like even though the other ladies in the office are constantly complaining about how that stems from favoritism yeah. by Jason, her ex-boyfriend and now boss, um, yeah. and not from her actual work ethic. I mean, the relationship between Mary and Jason and how that poisons a lot of the other interactions, I think, and the competition between the agents in the office is very messed up. Well, just the idea, I mean, I know that this is like the premise of a reality show and they have to play this up, but just the idea that like, the, the primary friendships in some ways are your coworkers. Like that's always just so toxic. We're a family. Like you don't do this to family. Like all of that rhetoric just sets you up to have passive aggressive, pretty toxic relationships. And they have that big blowout at Heather's brokers open. Oh my God. Can we not do this at my brokers open, please? I'm happy to leave. I wasn't the one that started it. I'm happy to leave because I came here taking time out of my actual schedule. I didn't say anything. To, so to do don't this. Can I show you guys I'm something in here? I'm yeah. not going to fight yeah. about anything. I can't fight about anything else, so. Yeah, you got an agent. Yeah. And also there's reality cameras there, too. Like, I mean, I know that this is like taking us out of the action, but like I always think of how how hard it would be to do your job if you have cameras on you. How weird is it when like you like someone's coming to see the house and they have to sign a release ahead of time? Like they're they knock on the door and they're met by a producer who's like, um, this is also a reality show. Like, can you sign your name here? You know? Going back to this notion of work is your family, did you, when you were researching your book, did you look at where that notion came from and like how long it's been around? I, you know, I didn't drill down specifically on that idea so much as this larger idea that I think a lot of millennials have encountered that like your job is a, like a cool job that you're passionate about and that because it's something that you're pursuing and because it's your passion that it's uh, somehow like uncouth to ask for fair pay or to um, rebel against bad working conditions because you don't talk about money with family. And if your work is your family, then you shouldn't talk about it with them, you know? And what it does is it allows millennials or any worker to just be continually exploited um, and feel like they have no recourse because their bosses are are using this rhetoric of fam of like a cool family in order to get around not paying a fair wage. Jason is throwing a dinner party. This is just kind of what we do at the Oppenheim Group. We're all very close. We're like family. But I'm still- yeah. And Amanda, interestingly, is the only one who has like an actual family that you see influence her work life. Yeah. But then she's kind of punished for it. You know, I wonder if this comes back to this thing we were talking earlier, where if your work colleagues take primacy, that means that your actual family then is like a distraction and and thus is like affecting your performance negatively and is seen negatively. You know, even that Instagram that caused all the drama of them doing like pole dancing (laughs) in Amanda's house or whatever. Bachelorette party? You guys had a bachelorette party without us, I heard. It was no, it was an impromptu kind of thing. I think that was more like people at her house. It wasn't really a party. Amanda and I were going to hang out at her house because she had the kids. But there were some people that weren't invited because they got their feelings. That was taken in Amanda's basement because she couldn't go to like the other party because she didn't have 
childcare. Like that's a suggestion, right? They had the party in her basement, this other secondary party, because she could be at home with her kids at the same time. And that's the sort of thing that like none of these other, none of the characters have to even deal with like those considerations in their universe. And certainly like Jason and Brett do not give a crap. And I think like Amanza is so hungry. Mm -hmm. She just wants to really situate herself as a broker. And so it doesn't have that sort of stability. Yeah. What's wild to me about the fact that this is a real estate brokerage is that their relationship to money and how much everyone is making and that hierarchy is actually totally transparent, right? Because like, you know how much the home sells for, you know Mm -hmm. what their base commission rate is. And I went down a little rabbit hole where I was like, well, how much do they actually make? Because they flash the commission on the screen, right? Like potential commission. And you think like, wow, like, you know, a high five figure commission, like you only need to sell one house a year, two houses a year to to like live large, but then actually like that commission is going to be split in half because you split it with the other agent. Yeah. And then you have to split your take with Jason and Brett because they're right. the owners of the brokerage. Right. So then their take home commission is like quite a bit smaller than that number that flashes yeah. on the screen. But then at the same time, it's like, because of the way real estate works, that means like everyone in the office can constantly be calculating, like tallying mm-hmm. up, like how much everyone has, which right. is also bananas to me. Why? You got yourself a deal. Seriously. Yep. Really? Shake on it. Yes. Okay. Hey, wait, it, am I imagining? Did it really happen? Well, that happened. This gives me confidence because yeah. it's been so it's been so long. That's for me, a six-figure so. commission. Yes. And and I do think that that's why there is that resentment of Mary is because if it seems like or is perceived as as getting these listings handed to you, then of course you're going to have a steadier stream of income. But also, I mean, like Mary, li- li- at least as far as I've seen, like she lives in this modest condo and I don't know if she's paying off debt, what's going on there, but like, it's not like she's living the high life. Mary's condo, which you only see in these like tantalizingly brief glimpses, yep. um, it made me think about a couple of things. The first thing it made me think of was what does this show have to say about class mobility? Mm-hmm. Because Mary is someone who has done some living. You know what I mean? Like she yep. was pregnant at 16. You know, you realize that she was a teen mom and she's been married a couple of times. And she had one husband who passed away. So she's like been through a lot. Like she's lived yeah. like 15 different lives, it seems like maybe in comparison especially to some of these other women. Because they also like talk a little bit about class mobility with Chriselle's story. And they have this whole thing about how Chriselle was like the smelly kid when she was growing up. Mm -hmm. And in season three, she goes home to visit her sister. And at one point, her sister says something to her like, you're strong, you'll get through this. Remember, we lived in a car, you'll be okay. And I was like, wow, well, Chriselle like went through some stuff too. Where we came from, you lived in a car. This is nothing. You got this. I just love you so much. No matter the skies. But I do think that there is this real balance to her story of I was legitimately poor. It's kind of a classic Hollywood story. I came to Hollywood to try to make it. You know, I married an actor and then got on this reality show. But it is, I do think that something like real estate is an occupation in the United States that you don't need a a massive education. You know, you just need to study and pass this exam. Actually, you know, bring yourself up by your bootstraps just by insinuating yourself into situations where you get listings and, and selling them successfully. But you do have to have, especially in 
what we see in Selling Sunset, like there is an aesthetic of a certain sort of agent, right? Like they need to dress a certain way. They need to have a certain style of boobs. Like that is what you expect in a real estate agent there. And to get to that point, there has to be capital along the way that allows you to do that. The women are very matter of fact about the plastic surgery they've gotten. I think at one point they mentioned just very like matter of factly again that Davina is the only one yes. with <laughs> fake boobs in the office. Yep. Silicone boobs? Yeah, I have that. That's what I have saline. You have saline? Oh, Fuck, yeah. I have silicone. No, mine are silicone. Silicone, oh. yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's really interesting, right? Like any other accoutrement of a successful agent, that's just part of the uniform, the same way that you'd buy like a fancy bag. Of course, you have fake boobs. Of course, like it's all this work all falls on the women, right? Yeah. The expense of this, like Jason and Brett, they obviously wear expensive clothes, but it's this very like considered casualness, like kind of like L.A. casual look. I, I do appreciate that they both seem to spend a lot of time on like body maintenance because I, I I would be pissed if you had like these like this stable of gorgeous women and then these two like schlubby dudes. Like they talk a lot about whenever they're having an event, you need to look good. You need to look like classy or whatever. They use words to to suggest the way that they want the agents to to look, but they also, you know, come appropriately dressed as well and with their bodies in appropriate shape. One of the less seemly parts of the show is there are these barons who are developing these properties. They don't have to look the way that all of the people on the show look like the, you know, the Bond villain guy who owns this Davina's house, like he just gets to look like He's on Sopranos. It has been so long, and I have not seen anything concrete on the table yet. That's why we're here. You guys, every day, not selling, it's costing me a fortune. That's who I think actually holds the money and the power, but they're not as uh, glamorous as the people on the show. This idea of like personal branding, which is something you talk about in your essay, and this is part of the work that burns out the millennial generation, the fact that you have to be constantly branding yourself and performing some version of yourself on social media, etc. Because I was thinking about how that relates to the way they stage these homes. They're always like, well, what kind of person would live here? What kind of buyer do we want to attract? And they're constantly talking about basically like rich bachelors who love to yep. entertain. Yep. And I'm like, first of all, why does a bachelor need five bedrooms? It makes no sense. <laughs> um, but then you realize how all of like the aesthetic of these L.A. homes, everything looks the same. And yep. these are not homes I want to live in. They don't look like friendly homes. They don't look like inviting homes to me. It's almost like they're selling to Brett and Jason. You know what I mean? Yes. It's like they're they're always yes. staging homes to Brett and Jason's taste. And then like we were talking about Mary's condo earlier. It's like almost devoid of personality. You don't see any like interesting artwork or anything that would help you understand what Mary's personal taste is like. And it made me wonder, like, someone like Mary, has she spent basically her whole late stage career in service to these hypothetical rich bachelors? And then she hasn't had time to, like, develop her own taste. It's such a good point. Wow. This is 5,000 square feet wow. of absolute zen. Is uh, this the only view, though? It is. And if you're looking for more of a view, we're going to be 
three or four million dollars up in the price point. You know, this yeah. is the thing that's often hard if you're trying to to climb the ladder towards success and stability is it means like negating yourself, especially for a woman, right? Negating any sort of rough edges like Mary through various forms of plastic surgery and through regimenting her body through exercise or diet or whatever, like she looks like an ideal, but like there's no there there. And I'm not trying to say she's stupid. She hasn't had a lot of space to develop that, those sorts of things because she's been focused on survival. You're right about all the houses. Like I love when they like show a house and they're like, this is a really cozy house. <laughs> and I'm like, this is the exact house that you showed just like a little bit ago, only it has a fireplace, right? Like that does not necessarily make a space cozy, even just through staging, you know, because like not all real estate relies as heavily on staging. And I think a lot of it relies on the idea that like you have to envision your whole life in this space as like a certain sort of person. You're not looking at it the way that you would decorate it. You're looking at it the way that like a cool person, bachelor who wants to have to entertain would decorate it. And all I can think of is like divorced dads who want to like <laughs> have these parties and then like have a spare room for their kids to visit for like a weekend. Like, cause otherwise who are these people? Where are these guys? Like, where do they, where do they come from? I was trying to think back to their various clients and I think you only ever see one family, yeah. you know? Um, and it's that couple that I think they're maybe expecting, but you don't see an actual child. When you think about this house, it's not for young children or school-aged children. No, because we're off Sunset, so it's more of like a lifestyle entertainment. So okay. I want the vibe to definitely uh, reflect that. It feels like Jason and Brett are like kind of antagonistic towards family. Like not only <laughs> not only in their own brokers, but they're like, ugh, we don't want to sell to families. Like the only <laughs> they're like, oh, it kind of like brings down the brand if we like if families want to buy houses that we're selling. You know how Jason Jason's the one with the big. House house, right? And then Brett yeah. has the condo. Okay. Yeah, so Jason so. has this big house he's building and they make a huge deal about this TV that comes out of the ground. For some reason, this really annoyed me because it just seemed like one of these things that people who have too much money to burn spend their money on. And yep. it is wildly impractical because you know that that hydraulic system or whatever is going to break. And then you know how long it's going to take to get a repair guy out there. And then the <laughs> can't watch your TV because it's literally stuck in your ground. Oh, I want to show you this. This is this is really cool. Boom. Oh, my God. You will never see an 85 inch TV come out of the ground. You ladies ever seen something like this? You know what? This is like this is something that's like homeowners understand so well is like anything that's complicated or unique, it's going to break and then it's going to take you forever to fix it. And so it's going to be a, a problem more than, you know, an attribute to your home. And then if you have millennial burnout, you're not going to even get around to calling that repair guy. You're not going to fix it. You're just going to stare at it every day or not stare at it because it's stuck in the ground <laughs> and and understand it. And you're just going to watch like Hulu on your laptop <laughs> instead of your massive television that you paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to have installed. That is a story of millennial burnout. Um, I am, though, now obsessed with pocket doors and will settle for nothing less. I mean, because pocket doors are not a new phenomenon. Like there's something, there were pocket doors 
out of necessity in some homes, like in, I don't know, like 20s, 30s or whatever. So I remember like my grandparents had a pocket door and I thought it really was the coolest, the most magic thing in the world. So I'm glad to see a resurgence. But I am, <laughs> so I think about this a lot in my own home of trying to to not just descend into that like bland, bourgeois, West Elm style taste. But then at the same time, like it's exhausting to try to like make your house different having unique taste requires a lot of work and time aesthetics are all like has just been like flattened out by social media you know like all the articles about like the airbnb aesthetic you know like you page through all these airbnb listings and everyone is decorating their listings exactly the same uh it just makes it hard to figure out like well what do i like because you're like i don't even know where to look right well especially right now actually it's, it's an interesting time to think about taste right because it's a more uh daunting proposition to be like, I'm going to go browse antique stores, right? <laughs> like with <laughs> yeah. COVID, you're like, no, I can only look online. And and then online, even everything is so because of the supply chain problems, like everything is so delayed that you're like, I guess I could just hang out with my own stuff, but there's nothing wrong with your own stuff anyways, you know? I did want to ask about homeownership because one hallmark of the millennial generation is how they were defined and shaped by the housing crisis and the subprime crisis. The housing crisis, like, does it even exist on this show? I guess it doesn't. It's like conspicuous in its absence. Yeah. Like that $40 million house, right? Like what (laughs) an amazing artifact of like pre-COVID times that you're like, I'm going to build this $40 million house. Like I love they like use it as like this peg for the first season that it's going to be like this point of competition. And then it just kind of like, like fades into the background. Like, uh, I don't know. And apparently I looked it up online and I think Jason sold it. Right. So after all that, after Heather being like, I have a buyer from China or whatever, yeah. this like mysterious Chinese oligarch, it's like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No one got that commission. Yeah. When it's done, it will be over 20,000 square feet. Wow. Five luxurious bedrooms and nine bathrooms. Not only that, it has a 15 car garage, four hot tubs, 150 foot pool, 360 degree views from the rooftop deck and an elevator that takes you up there. But no, it's not like you do not get the feeling at all that the show is like haunted by the very recent history of the real estate crisis. Yeah, I was uh, confused about what the show wanted to say about this notion of I earned this all myself, because on one hand, it presents these women who do work hard and you see like how glamorously they're dressed. And like in the case of Christine, like she has this like great house and everything. But then at the same time, you have an extended talking head with Christine where she's like, oh, well, I have my like Louis Vuitton rep on speed dial and I'll give him my fiance's credit card number and then I'll right. delete the notifications off his phone. So are we supposed to be like, you go, girl, you worked hard for that Louis Vuitton right. bag. Or are you supposed to be like, you married a rich guy and now you're doing this thing where like you're like hiding your purchases from him. So I have like my Louis Vuitton representative on speed dial. So when he's sleeping, I'll have her buy a purse and then I'll delete the notification while he's sleeping. I don't know. Some call it fraud. I call it love. That just seems like conniving, right? That doesn't seem like, <laughs> oh, we have conversations about wealth and money and all like it, it does not seem like an equal partnership or like uh like a, I worked hard to get that partnership it just feels backhanded 
Like I'm like, Christine, you don't have to do that. You could <laughs> yeah. just talk to him about your Louis Vuitton bag and I'm sure he would give it to you. I really enjoyed seeing Christine's outfits get more and more over the top as oh the God. season progressed. Like at one point, my husband was like, I feel like Christine gets up in the morning and says, what would Lady Gaga want to wear if she were a realtor? <laughs> and then she puts on that and comes to the office. <laughs> well, and she, you know, I love the character of Christine because she's such a classic villain, right? You know, one of my first graduate student papers that I ever wrote was about the hills and melodrama and how when you're doing a show that is clearly contrived in the way that it's like scripted in the way that the hills and selling sunset and some other reality programs are, they are shaping the narrative and what they're shaping it as is melodrama with a clearly legible hero and villain. They're trying to make that very visible, right? There's not, they're not trying to be like, everyone's kind of good, but I love Christine because she just leans into it so hard. Like she is clearly wearing these outfits like she had in season two a lot of the like confessionals she's wearing these suit jackets that have shoulder pads that give her this like 1940s Joan Crawford villainess look that is just amazing and she's also so funny yeah I think Christine has a keen sense of melodrama because when she's planning her engagement party she tells the party planner she wants a theme to be sexual phantom of the opera (laughs) (laughs) just gonna be like casual I just want like stuff going on like no big deal like sexual phantom of the opera exactly I'm thinking like like a zebra here the zebra yeah I love this kind of like arc of Adam DeVello's career. You know, he's like moving up in terms of like each life stage. I'm fascinated by just the general idea of reality shows forcing this blending between the personal life and the the professional life. It is a millennial experience that he has tracked in a lot of ways. And like Laguna Beach was one of the first to reality shows, I think, to really try to shape the narrative as much as it did. So much of the contemporary reality aesthetic and and the melodramatic elements of it, I think can really be traced back to the Laguna Beach style. Of course, high school is intermingled with your personal life. They don't have jobs. They have high school, which we never saw. Then into the hills, like you had sort of jobs, but they were like, the, the social life's always took the foreground. And I think when we go into your 30s, people's social lives really go into the background and your job takes the foreground. So it makes sense that it would rotate around the workplace. And then you can see just how hard it is to, to manage all those things at once. Yeah, I will never get bored of the classic Adam DeVello closing shot of like a beautiful <laughs> woman walking away from a party while this like generic pop music plays like I just live for that moment at the end of every episode or like or staring out at the ocean is like <laughs> yeah. a classic develop shot is like it is the best I just need this content injected directly into my veins yes <laughs> <laughs> um well uh last thing then do you want to just tell everyone where they can find you and your newsletter and your reporting and your book yeah so you can find me on twitter at ann helen and my newsletter is annhelensubstack.com you could also just google my name and newsletter and it'll come up but thank you so much this was so fun Rework is produced by Waylon Wong and me, Sean Hildner. Music for the show is by Clipart. 
Anne Helen Peterson's book is Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. It is out now, and you can find it on bookshop.org or at your local independent bookstore. We will link to her book along with her newsletter and the famous essay on millennial burnout that started it all in the show notes for this episode at rework.fm. Waylon, you got to do your episode. How does it feel? Uh, feels amazing. Well, dear listener... <laughs> Even if this wasn't quite up your alley, sometimes we do weird stuff on here, but don't worry. Next week, we are checking in with our old friend, David Heinemeyer Hansen, to tell you what he's been up to, because he's been off Twitter for a while. He's coming on live from Europe. Not live, I should not promise that, but he's in (laughs) Europe. (laughs) European Bureau. Feel the rain on your skin. No one else can feel it for you. Only you can let it in. No one else. No one else. Feel the rain on your skin. Um. Well, I have not seen the show. I know that might surprise you. But <laughs> so you're not so a I, reality show person, though. Like, I'm what's really like? What really is not. a reality show you've ever watched? This is just not your genre. None. I mean, d- does documentary film count? Right, that's reality. That's like proto reality. You're like, oh, Errol Morris is my preferred reality show producer. I really like a thin blue line. So highbrow, so highbrow. Mm, the Fog of War is that a reality show? Fog of War is so good. I'm not. I'm not trying to disparage Fog of War. Know, my I God, know. don't at me, people.